4.30, I think we can go ahead and get started. Uh, they gave me the 4.30 to 5.30 slot, so I know I have to be twice as interesting to hold everyone's uh, interest here, so I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, hope everyone's enjoying your time here, and uh, we'll talk about associated ease for the next hour or so. And uh, I'm gonna start by saying that I'm probably not real good at telling people they can't do something. And, what I mean by that is the, the longer I do this job, the more that I put a high value on not just people's ideas, but the people behind the ideas. And I, I say that because in my role, people come to me a lot with different ideas to grow their practice. And even if I don't really see it right away or get it, um, I believe in people, I really do. And the more I do this job, the more of a value I place on that. So if somebody's really motivated and passionate about their idea, I, I wanna hear it through. I wanna hear about it. Um, I tend to believe that if, if you are very motivated and passionate, that, that you're gonna make that work. Um, but I also, as part of my role, have to balance that with practicality. And, um, and, and I say that earlier part because again, people come to me with a lot of ideas to grow their practice. So there's a practical side to that as well. And I mean, Ben, I'll pick on you for a minute. If you told me that surfing was, was your passion and, and you woke up in the morning and just all you thought about was surfing and had lunch and, and got through your day surfing, surfing, and said, I wanna make surfing my life. I, I wanna make it my livelihood. I, I wanna start a surfboard business. I'll be your biggest fan, Ben, next to your mom, until you tell me that that surfboard business is in Des Moines, Iowa. And then we have to back away a little bit and, and just kind of look at the practicality of that. So I say this for context, because again, a lot of people want to know, what are your top practices doing? When you look at the practices that you work with within IDOC, and you look at the top producing practices, the one that seem to continue to, to grow and outperform the competition. I will tell you that as, as we're here today, uh, mostly it's on volume. Here's what they do. They built a great practice. Um, in a lot of cases, started it very young and delivered a great experience, delivered great service, built a lot of loyalty with their patients. Their patients came back, referred other people, and it took a while, but over the years, that practice kept growing and that doctor showed up to work one day and said, whoa, I need some help here. We're booked out, we're booked out for days, we're booked out maybe for a couple weeks. I have to replace myself. I have to hire somebody else to increase capacity. So they hired an associate, maybe hired a couple of associates, and then began to back away from patient care. Not necessarily fully, but they began to back away and create more time for themselves to focus on being the CEO of the business. More time to operate the business side of things, the, the management side of things. So that's how things operate today. Uh, five, 10 years from now, uh, I may be up here saying something different, but right now, if you wanna continue to grow your practice, take it to new levels, that associate OD becomes a real key component to doing that. You will become the ceiling eventually if you're not able to replace yourself. So that's what I wanna talk about, but I don't wanna talk about just how to recruit an associate OD. I don't wanna talk about just how to replace yourself, but what I'd like to talk about, and it's the only way this really works, is how to successfully replace yourself. 
because that associate OD position sometimes goes really sideways. So we're gonna talk about a lot of the things that I see um, that could potentially become problems. Some of the challenges that I hear with bringing on an associate. Uh, so hopefully you can avoid some of those issues and make it a very successful transition. I wanna spend a minute talking about the supply demand issue because there's some misconceptions around that. And I mean the supply demand issue in terms of associate ODs. Uh, some of the things that you might be hearing are there, there's too many optometry schools, the job market is saturated, and if you're coming out of school, it's gonna be hard to find a job. <clears throat> That's not really the case. It, 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 it's not really the case. There's two ways of looking at this, and, and I think this comes from the, uh, if you look at the supply of associate ODs relative to patient demand, a lot of times that's where this line of thinking comes from. If we use MBA data, for example, the average associate sees 1.2 uh, patients per hour. So let's just say you're in a practice uh, seeing eight patients a day and there's seven other optometrists in your area. Well, to you, that might seem like there's too many ODs and maybe there are. You know, it, from that context, maybe there are too many schools. Maybe there are too many doctors. It would be nice if there wasn't so much competition, right? But what that really doesn't take into consideration is that there's an awful lot of employment opportunities these days. So relative to the number of employment opportunities, we're really seeing a shortage of available associate ODs out there. And I say that because it changes the way you have to recruit. And a lot of employers, a lot of doctors are trying to recruit associates as if there's this huge candidate pool out there banging their door down trying to get a job, that's not the case. And it changes the way you recruit, it changes the way you present your job offer from making it just a job to how do we create something that sounds like a great opportunity for the right candidate. So we'll get more into that as we, as we move forward. So let's look first at when is the practice ready? At what point are you ready to bring on an associate? And the top thing that probably drives that is patient demand. Um, if, they, if you build it, they will come was a great line in Field of Dreams, but in the context of bringing on an associate OD, uh, it's really best to have that associate or that, uh, that patient demand already there. And as a, as a general rule, if you're booked out a few days to a week, you can usually make an argument for at least bringing on a part-time associate. If you are booked out for two weeks or beyond, you can usually make a pretty good argument for bringing on a full-time associate. One thing to consider though in this is your, own, is your own production as well. If you say I'm booked out for six weeks, great. If you say I'm booked out for six weeks, but I only schedule one patient an hour, are you really booked out for six weeks or are you just, slow. Um, so consider your own, before you go hiring another associate, adding to the productivity, or I mean adding to the payroll, you'll want to consider your own productivity as well, so you're not just adding an associate to see patients that you could have seen yourself, with maybe some greater efficiency, more staffing, and those sorts of things. Uh, Full-time versus part-time, um, sometimes you have to 
uh, make concessions on what is presented to you. And what I mean by that is what we talked about before. In a lot of areas, there's this shortage of available associates. And sometimes you might be presented with somebody who can only work a certain number of hours. You may have been trying to recruit a doctor for the last three months and only got one resume, um, and it was for somebody who says, I can only take this job if, I, uh, if it's full-time. So you might be at a point where you don't feel like you're ready to bring on a full-time hire, but it's the only option you have. So you need to consider uh, at that point, is this something we can absorb? How long would it take to build them up to the point where they are seeing more patients? Um, but it's, again, with the market we're in, uh, you sometimes don't have all the options that you would like. And then consider your own goals as well. If you're working six days a week, I've talked to some of you who are in, I talked to several of you uh, these past couple days that are in this situation where you just don't want to work as much. Uh, you're at a point in the, the growth of your um, practice, you're at a point in the, uh, the life cycle of where you want to be in, and in your personal life where you just don't want to work as much in the practice. So consider your own goals on this as well. Let's say you're working six days a week, but you would prefer to work four, then obviously that affects the ability to bring on an associate, perhaps full-time uh, as opposed to part-time. And the costs, I'll jump ahead to these here. Um, the two main costs that you have when you bring on an associate are additional staffing and cost of goods. And additional staffing only really if you need to add more staffing. You might be at a, um, a place right now where you're overstaffed, so that wouldn't be necessary. Or again, if you're willing to cut back a little bit on your schedule, um, that might reduce the need to bring on more staffing. Cost of goods will go up, but that's only because you're selling more materials. So as a very general rule, uh, because a lot of your costs are fixed, even when you bring on an associate, as a very general rule, if the associate is able to generate about twice what you're paying them, that usually puts you pretty close to a break-even point. And just to use round numbers, if you're paying an associate $100,000 and they're generating $200,000 for the practice, um, in a lot of cases, we'd want to look closer at the numbers, but that should put you pretty close to a level where you're able to pay their salary plus the additional costs involved with having the associate. Space and equipment, that could potentially be, uh, in a lot of cases, probably a one-time cost, but if you're able to keep the associate busy enough, there could be a really high return on investment to that if you need to equip, equip a room or buy new equipment. And then consider the reduction in your own time as well. Because again, if you're at that point where you're ready to, uh, to back away from patient care, there's a cost to that, but it really comes in the form of personal time. It's, you're, you're basically buying more personal time. Uh, and, but that might also be, on the grand scheme of things, a, a short-term cost. Because it's, I think we tend to look at this in the, in the short term, that if I'm not working as much, I'm gonna take a little bit of a hit on my personal income. But let's consider that long-term as well. If you're able to spend more time focusing on operating the practice and practice management, more time focusing on the staff and, and the facility and operations and being the CEO and the visionary and where do we need to focus our attention on to keep our practice moving forward, to stay innovative, to stay competitive, what does that mean over the course of a year, three years, five years? Interestingly, 
a lot of our top, I would say many of our top practices at IDOC, the, the owner spends a lot less time seeing patients than many of our, we'll say less, I don't want to say less successful, I just want to say the practices that haven't quite got to that level yet. If we look at the job ad, um, and, and this is going to really speak to the, uh, again, the supply-demand issue that we're seeing in the marketplace right now. Um, I would say most of the ads I look at are written primarily and sometimes exclusively for the benefit of the employer. Here's all the things I need from you for the privilege of working for me. In other words, you're writing a job ad for you and not necessarily for the uh, job seeker. It's helpful to put yourself in the other person's shoes and look at it from that standpoint. And the contrast, I know it didn't come out real good, so I'll read this, but this is, a, uh, this is an actual job ad uh, from Local Eyesight. They let me use this, and I said I would credit them, so this is from Local Eyesight. Uh, growing practice in the North Georgia area, seeking an optometrist for full-time or part-time. Qualified candidate must be willing to assist with cataract surgery post-ops, medical cases such as glaucoma eval, eye infections, diabetic exams. They must also be able to perform excellent routine exams for glasses and contacts. Travel between Cummings and Dacula required two to three days per week, competitive salary benefits and bonus plans. It's a job ad, and, and quite frankly, it, it looks like most job ads that I see which is also part of the problem. If you want an ad to stand out, if understanding that we're in a competitive market where you've got to change the way you recruit and you want to create a job ad that pops, that stands out, that gets people's attention, to me, that's a problem that it looks like every other job ad that surrounds it. So what I'm going to ask you to do here is take off your employer hat for a minute and put on your job seeker hat. Let's pretend you're a 28-year-old student with $200,000 worth of debt looking for a job. I'm going to show you a different job ad. Our practice looking for a doctor of optometry. Substantial compensation package. I mean, they just open up with that. How can you say that? Nobody cares about money. High guaranteed base salary. Are you kidding? You can say that? People actually care about money. Full benefit package, including health, dental, retirement, monthly bonus incentives, no admin paperwork, convenient hours, generous paid vacations plus paid holidays. Look, <laughs> that answers my question. Look, uh, yeah, I got two, two people in the front row want to apply right now. And look, I'm not saying either one of these is the perfect job ad, but I'm just saying, um, be honest with yourself, if you were someone looking for a job, which one would get your attention more? So again, you have to consider the ad you write, is it attractive to someone looking at it? The whole point of a job ad is to get someone to call, is to get a response, to get them to take that next step. You want them to call, you want them to, to email, whatever they need to do, it's to get interviews. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if your job ad just looks like every other job ad out there, if there's nothing in it that really speaks to why this is a great opportunity, I'm much less likely to apply for it. 
This one here, I don't remember. Um, I will say that the, this here, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I was asked to block out the, uh, the identifier information up there. Like I said, I'm not saying that's the perfect job ad. I'm just saying that which would grab your attention more out of the two. I'd, Sure, yeah. The most popular is probably Indeed. We've got a list. If you're interested, you can send me an email. We actually have a list of various places that you can advertise. Some are eye care specific, some are more general. Um, I, I think it, in, in this market helps to spread a wide net. Um, Indeed is probably the most popular one. Uh, and again, back to the job ads, some, some of the more common job ad, we'll call them blunders I see, um, just putting too much useless information in a job ad, and it might not seem useless to you, but again, put yourself in a position of someone reading your job ad, looking for a job. This, this is another job ad. Um, uh, I, I, I saw a growing optometry practice looking to hire an optometrist. Our practice was started in 1983. Is there anybody reading that thinking, well, I'm kind of a mid-90s guy, but I'll, I'll, I'm not gonna rule it out yet. Currently, we have two full-time ODs and one part-time OD. Qualified candidate must be willing to assist with cataract surgery, post-ops, medical cases such as glaucoma, eye infection, diabetic exams. They must also be able to perform excellent routine exams for glasses and contacts. Can we just assume if they got through school and passed their boards, they can probably do excellent routine exams? Um, so let me ask you this. You're the job seeker. You just read, read this ad. What part of it really grabbed your attention? What part, of, what part of it really made you want to pick up a phone and call this office? What part of it made you want to work here? Maybe nothing. So consider that in your ad. I would say 90% of the ads I see, the job ads I see, that my top request when we change things is let's make this more attractive to the, um, to the job seeker. And if I'm really feeling feisty, sometimes I'll just send the, the ad back and I'll say, without telling me anything else about the, about the ad, just based on what I can read, ask, tell me why should I work there? Why should I work for you? And it kind of gets a little you know, wheel spin and like, oh, okay, so we should, we should consider the other person in this as well and how can we make this sound like a great opportunity? Uh, not mentioning the name of the practice, uh, I know there's sometimes you wanna keep the, uh, the job ad anonymous, I, I get that. Just know that ads that are anonymous tend to get less hits. Um, and in some cases, and I think this is a good thing, people may actually wanna look you up online, see your practice, see pictures of your staff. I think that's a good thing. I see a lot of ads that say eye care practice or optometrist looking, um, looking to hire instead of actually just putting the name on there where they could find out more information about you. Not mentioning salary. Um, I'm not saying you have to list a specific amount. I, I don't think you should do that, but no mention of salary at all. Um, nobody's ever gonna admit this, but CareerBuilder found that that's actually the number one reason people don't respond to an ad. There's no mention of salary. Because what does that communicate when there's no mention of salary? It must not be very good or you would have mentioned it. So um, putting some kind of language in there like competitive salary or if you feel like you could back it up, excellent salary. 
And then again, we, we talked about just the narcissistic, what I like to call narcissistic job ads. Is, what's that? Yeah. We're great, yeah. Here's everything I need from you. This is a lot of ads. They're 80, 90%. Everything I need from you to work for me. It's not the market we're in. If you've got a line of people out your door, a lot of highly qualified candidates, by all means, put your feet up on your desk, clasp your hands behind your head, you know, and say, why should I work for you? Uh, or why should, why should I hire you? But it's not the market we're in. So um, they're not going to directly ask you this. But the answer you need to be prepared to answer for people looking for a job in this market is why, tell me why I should work here. This is a list. I, I can feel free to take a picture. I can also send you a, um, I can email this to you as well. But a lot of times when I'm sending back a job ad and saying, let's, let's look at how to make this a bit more attractive for the job seeker. These are some of the things that you could consider putting in salary, uh, benefits if they apply. Um, Work-life balance is important to people. And, you know, I've seen a, uh, sometimes I'll see at the bottom of an ad, office hours, nine to five. It's like, no, you're bearing the lead. Take that and put that right up at the top. Put no evenings or weekends, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I'm not saying you should do that, but if, um, in fact, we're usually in favor of adding those less convenient hours for an associate. But if you're an office that just doesn't do it, you're nine to five and you're not changing, fine. That's a benefit. That's, that's an attractive benefit uh, in terms of work-life balance. Uh, professional development opportunities, ability to implement a specialty. Um, these can really speak to people in perhaps more of a refractive-based um, environment where they're just getting bored and burned out. There's an opportunity here to come in. We do specialty contact lenses. I can teach you to do that. I can mentor you. I can mentor you in VT. Oh, you've, you're certified in, in ortho-K or you're, you've done some work before in, in dry eye, I'd welcome you to bring that into our practice. Opportunity for ownership, if, if that's on the table, if that's on the table, or partnership. Uh, again, ability to practice full scope eye care. Um, advanced office technology, supportive staff, lifestyle benefits. I told somebody before, if you're sending me a job ad and you live in Denver, do not send me that ad without the words ski resort in that ad somewhere. Mar or marijuana, depending on, your, <laughs> depending on your preference. If you can slide that in and pay. Um, you, yeah, you never know what's going to, that could, glaucoma, yeah. Um, so that to me, what does this look like? Not just a job anymore. It looks like a great place to work. Congratulations, your job ad worked and somebody's sitting in your chair now ready for an interview. And, I think we know a lot of the uh, standard questions in interviews, so I'm not going to drill down into that a lot. Where'd you go to school? Uh, can you work weekends? What, what, where did you work at before? Those sorts of things. But I'd like to talk about a couple things that don't always get built into the um, interview, maybe as much as they should. And one of them is assessing someone's personality, which is so important to the success of, of an optometrist, um, to how well that associate is going to be embraced by your patients. Nobody ever said, I love my optometrist. Really, why do you love your optometrist? Ah, oh, she graduated third in her class and she's certified in orthokeratology. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that. They like you as a person. Um, they, they, 
the, the people who keep coming back and referring others, it's because you're nice and friendly and empathetic and compassionate and you ask about their kids. I've sat in offices, I've observed some of our top members, them in action, and, and something really interesting happens when they walk in the room. Their patients are happy to see them. They've really doubled down on the relationships. So you don't have to make this feel like it's part of the interview, but spend a few minutes in the beginning just getting to know them, just talk, just chat. Is this someone I could go out to lunch with? Can they hold a conversation? Are they, are they friendly and personable? Is this someone I could go out and have a beer with? Um, if it moves farther than that, take them and their spouse out to dinner, get them into a different environment. Um, again, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to feel like part of the interview, but it, it, it can be part of the interview is assessing their personality and if they're gonna be a good fit um, with your patients. Um, consistent values. So many of the times I see things go sideways with an associate is because they just share a different set of values and it really creates this, this friction between them and the other OD and in a lot of cases them and other staff members as well. Every business has a, a culture or a personality. Um, these are two signs that I saw just days apart from each other. Uh, the one on the bottom is a restaurant near the gym I go to. Restrooms for customers only. Which is really odd because I hardly ever see any customers in there. <laughs> Which I wouldn't think that bathroom uh, uh, policies would be their top priority, but, but that's where they've went with it. And a couple days later I was traveling and I checked into a hotel and, and this is the, the sign I saw up here. If you're not satisfied with your stay, let us know and we'll make it right. Um, just these little signs can tell you a lot about the culture of, of a business, right? Um, when you walk in. As a customer, it gives me a sense of how I'm gonna be treated at these different institutions. How I'm gonna be treated, what, how, how the business is gonna respond if something goes wrong. It gives me a sense as a potential employee of what kind of workplace I'm walking into. If I'm applying for a job there, it gives me a sense for how I'm gonna be expected to act and behave, how I'm gonna be expected to respond if something goes wrong, if there's a problem with a, a customer or a client. And God forbid someone needs to take a piss and doesn't want to order a slice of your pizza. <laughs> so ridiculous, I'm just glad you laughed at that by the way. So the values, you, you wanna make sure that someone has consistent values with the, the culture that you've built. Um, and we can certainly build that into the interview as well. It's, it's not a perfect science and HR people like to call these behavioral based questions, uh, but it's getting a sense for how they would handle um, situations that, uh, it, it's basically your how would you handle, how did you handle situations in the past, trying to see if they're a good fit with your culture and I've shared this story before, so I'm sorry if you heard it before, but it was a, uh, such a great example of a, uh, the, uh, the, the, the power of a question and, and how good, inter good interviews really, they ask good questions, but what they do even better is they listen. I was at Starbucks, uh, this was a couple years ago, and I was overhearing right next to me a job interview a manager was interviewing somebody else. And if you know anything about Starbucks, whether or not you like their coffee, um, they are very much, their, their brand is very much built around the uh, experience. And they're very, it's a very service-driven um, company. 
And the manager asked the person that she was interviewing, uh, tell me about a time in the past when you had to deal with an angry customer. Now she could have answered this a variety of ways. Her answer was basically, I just can't believe how hard you work for people and how bad they treat you. <clears throat> hmm, right? What are you looking for in that person? And more than likely, I mean, she could answer that a few different ways. She could have said, well, if, if that's the case, I just, I listen to them first. I, I let them say what they want to say because I, I want to know. I want to learn what's the problem so I can help them. Or, you know, I, I want to know everything I can about the situation so I'm able to, to intervene and, and, you know, give them the help that they need. But she went with the defensive. She went with the defensive. It took everything I've got. It's really hard four years in to turn this off. Uh, what I do, and it took everything I had not to turn to her and go, you're not getting this job, but let me try to help you out for your next interview. <laughs> so you can learn a lot from the questions you ask um, people. You, you might have heard Dave in the, uh, um, in the intro remarks talk about something that's really permeated our culture in, at IDOC, better together. It's one of our core values. We call it better together. And I, know I used to be guilty of this too, core values, mission statements. Yeah, those are the things you write down and they, you know, no one ever looks at them. No, if that's really something that's constantly stressed and ingrained into your office culture, it does change things. I've seen it change things at IDOC, better together. It, it, it stresses a collaborative, teamwork-driven environment. So again, we could ask a person we're considering if that were the same value that you shared in your practice, someone you were considering bringing on, tell me about a time in the past where somebody that worked for you or somebody you worked with uh, continued to underperform. They didn't deliver on the job that was expected of them. You know, do you get someone who says, yeah, I can't believe what a pain in the ass it is, these people we have to work with. Um, I am, uh, I'm the doctor, so it wasn't my job to take care of this, but you know, our manager wasn't very good, so um, that was just a constant problem. Or do they say, well, if somebody wasn't doing something, they kept making a lot of mistakes, kept doing, uh, you know, underperforming, as we might say, I, I would usually step in and try to figure out what was going on. You know, do, do they need more help? Do they need more training? I try to figure out what was going on so we could fix it. Better together. Which one is more aligned with that? So again, you can learn a lot from people by asking the right questions and just listening. Salary negotiation. Here's a big one. Average pay for an OD. What's the average pay for an OD? Thinking about making an offer, well, how's this? I've seen salary ranges everywhere from 85 to 150,000. How's that for a range? Um, it's a lot of variability in, in, in salary. So naturally that, that brings on the, the next question is, what should I offer? Um, I don't know, I, I really don't. The question is, should you offer at all or do you just ask, what are your salary expectations? I lean more toward that, and I'll tell you why. Some people are afraid to ask that question because they're gonna get an answer. Um, they probably have a number bouncing around in their head anyway. I think you might as well just ask it and get it out on the table, find out what it is, find out if we can work with it. If you make an offer, there's, there's a couple risk involved there, and you risk coming in high or coming in low. Okay, you could come in low and risk losing them to a, a practice up the road who offered just a little bit more. 
And people aren't always gonna counter. You might make an offer and they just politely nod their head, say, that sounds great, I need to think about it, and they stop returning your calls, you never hear from them again, and find out later that the practice up the road paid them $5,000 more. I'd hate to see you lose somebody uh, for that reason. Um, the other thing you risk is coming in high. You're offering 120,000 to somebody who would have been ecstatic about 100,000. So um, one thing to consider is just asking them what their salary expectations are and just getting that out on the table. From there, you can decide, one, is it a fair request? Can I, can I meet them at that number? Two, does it require a counter offer? Are we, we're kind of there, but we're not quite there. Maybe we need to work in some kind of a production bonus or something like that. Um, how do we close that gap and, and come to an agreement? Or third, it's just so far off the spectrum that you just need to move on. And if they don't give you an off, uh, a, a number, you could always ask too, um, can I ask what you're, you're being paid at your current job or your previous job? Uh, because a lot of people will tend to use that as a benchmark. Um, most people don't want to take a big pay cut. They'd like to make at least what they're making uh, currently or maybe even a little bit more. So either of those numbers, at, at least it gives you a, uh, a basis for a number. Sure. If the, yeah, <clears throat> don't quiz me on the details of it, uh, and you'd want to check on that account, but I have seen that, um, not a lot. Um, if you can do it, I, I'm, I'm open to anything as far as negotiation. Um, if that's... That would be up to the recipient. It's kind of like say, people will say, will, will she be satisfied with this offer? I have no idea. It's one thing I just, I can't put myself into the position of the other person, what they need. Would that be something that they have any use for? Uh, possibly. I think, again, if you, I think I lean toward that a nice, clean, I'll get this, that in a second, flat off. If you can come just a flat rate, that's the cleanest, simplest way to do it. But when you have to start throwing in other things, whether it's a production bonus or benefits or partial benefits, um, you know, that, that's certainly something that can be worked in as well. I have seen a few offices do that. Um, it gets into the, the tax-free uh, tax side of it. You have to talk with a CPA about that. Yeah, everything. Yeah, everything. Everything collected, yeah. Well, I don't think you ever have to tell them what they made, um, but it, it, it's hard to avoid that if they know how other doctors are being paid. It's likely they're going to find out. I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad thing. It is what it is, but... Eat what you kill, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's... 
do you have a base minimum or? You get, okay, okay. I'll jump in, I'm gonna get to that in a second if it's okay, that's a couple slides ahead, we'll come right back to that. Okay. Give me one second and let me plug in. Okay, this is one of my favorites. My associate OD isn't doing anything to grow my business. This, this is one of my favorites. Um, and it usually goes like this. My associate OD I hired uh, isn't doing anything to bring new patients into the practice. Uh, they're just seeing my overflow. They're not going out there to do anything to bring new patients in. My associate OD isn't doing anything to grow my practice. So, you thought you were gonna hire an associate and they were gonna go out there and start doing some marketing, join the Chamber of Commerce, start speaking at schools, go to their kids' games and start handing out business cards. Well, they're not. They're not gonna do that. With the very rare exception of an associate who's buying into a practice or is being groomed for, for ownership or partnership, I honestly can't think of a time where I, I heard of an associate OD taking on that level uh, of, of initiative about someone else's business, and I'm gonna tell you why. And hang with me here for a second. Even if you're not totally on board with what I'm gonna say, I'm gonna bring this full circle in a second. The reason your associate OD won't grow your business is because it's your business. They're an employee of the practice. The expectation is that they're gonna see the patients that you provide. When you decided to be an owner, that's what you signed up for, growing a business, owning a business, the marketing, the branding, and everything else that goes into it. Does that mean that the associate OD can't be expected to grow your business? Absolutely not. I'm very bullish on bringing an OD, uh, making them a bigger role in growing the business. But here's the thing. Your associate is not going to make the growth of your practice a job responsibility of theirs until you make it a job responsibility of theirs. And that really starts by clarifying expectations right from the beginning. What do you want them to do? Instead of having headaches and losing sleep and banging your head against a wall because they're not proactively going out there to do things to grow your business, just clarify what is it that you want them to do. Let's take the mystery out of it. Um, just some suggestions here. Um, launch a marketing campaign, build a dry eye specialty, speak at schools, take a greater involvement in staff training, Start a patient referral program, write articles for your monthly newsletter, or join civic clubs. Um, I'm gonna say too, you don't have to do this. If you feel like their biggest contribu uh, contribution to the practice is seeing patients, then just have them see patients. But this is a common complaint I hear a lot from owners. They want the, the OD, to the associate to be more involved with growing the practice, if that's the case, um, and certainly this can apply for an associate who's not fully booked. Because again, I almost promise you, and I'm not arguing right versus wrong. I'm just arguing this is what you're going to see happen. I'm, I'm arguing this is what I hear over and over. If this isn't clarified on the front end, the expectation for the most part 
to the associate is gonna be, I'm here to see patients. If there's no patients to see, there's nothing for me to do. So just clarify that on, on the front end and block out time for them. Uh, again, this, preferably do, during, and I wanna mention real quick here, I'll get to you in just a second. Preferably, this will be something that they want to do. I'm not trying to force somebody to do something. I'm not trying to force the associate who's never had a Facebook account or been on social media to take over my social media marketing. But as part of a discussion, preferably upon hire, um, is there anything in addition that you could bring of value to the practice? So through that discussion, is there something they'd be interested and, and willing and on board with doing? Because you really do need their buy-in on this. We need to come to an agreement and then blocking out time, um, preferably a time of low patient demand, let's say from one o'clock to three o'clock on Tuesday, we're going to block out time on the schedule for you to focus on these other things that you want them to do to grow the business. Now it's no longer just a, a suggestion. Hey, if you get some extra time, can you do that thing we talked about? No, now it's actually blocked out on the schedule. It's a job requirement. It's not just a suggestion anymore. Did you have a question? And sometimes that works, and a lot of times it doesn't. Yeah, but again, wh what does that mean? Put them on a bonus system, what do you want them to do? Right, but what do you want them to do to see more patients? This is where a lot of times the issue comes in. Nothing's been defined in terms of what you want them to do to, to bring more patients to the practice. And so by that, that lack of clarity there leads to them not doing it. This is the number one issue with any bonus program is the failure to define what you want people to do. The, the bonus is just the reward for doing something differently. The problem is we don't do a very good job of defining what we want people to do differently. And that bonus ends up just becoming an entitlement. Try pulling it away and see how that goes. But I, if I, it's a fair point, it makes sense. The only problem with it is the number of people who called me and said, I put this bonus out there, I dangled this financial carrot, now I'm paying more money, but they're not doing anything different. And I think you need to get in front of that and just be more clear on what you want them to do. I, something I hear all the time is, I wanna put an incentive program in place so people will be more motivated. I don't know what that means. I, I've heard people say, I want people to want, I want my associate to want to see more patients. I don't know how to do that. Look, look, look at me. You want to see more patients. <laughs> you want to see more. Why don't you just tell them how many patients you want them to see? Just be clear about it. We see patients three an hour, um, three full exams an hour and a checkup. Just be clear. You want them to do something to go out there and grow the patient base. Be clear on what that is. Come to an agreement with them. I'm not talking about dictating, forcing someone to do something they don't want to do. I'm just talking about greater clarity in the workplace. Does that make sense? Yeah. Over and then go do what you need to do because no 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, these are all right. Everything, what you're talking about, what we're talking about here, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but couldn't agree more. But yeah, it's a more productive way of doing things. But whatever, if you decide that I'm the one, again, it, it's fine if you decide I want my associate to take a bigger role in this. Let's sit down and talk about how, with the associate, how can we get you more involved with some of these things uh, to be involved with, with business growth as well. But it's also perfectly acceptable to say, you know what, I want to be the one who grows the business. I want to be the CEO, um, and I want my associate or associates to see the patients. Then, yeah, and I'm going to get to that in a second, shifting more people over to the associate to clear up more time for you. Honestly, that's probably more in line with what most owners, uh, a lot of owners want to do, is, is when I'm getting the... Um, when I'm hearing about the owner that says, I got all these ideas, these strategies I want to execute on, I don't have time. So you don't have time, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talked about blocking out the schedule and then meeting frequently to review um, outcomes. And, and this for me is a, a great way to establish some accountability for this. Uh, is if you have things that you want them to do, if there's new projects you want to put in place and you want to see that stick, right? Um, it, it, all too often, this becomes one conversation. Hey, if you get some extra time, could you do this, uh, you know, look into HIPAA compliance for us and nothing gets done and it creates a lot of frustration. Uh, but again, if we're making that a clear expectation, giving them time they need, if you want them to do this, but then also creating a cadence where you meet with them on somewhat of a regular basis, to me, it's a great way to establish accountability. Accountability for me is just putting people in a position where they have to, to account for their performance on a regular basis. And that really goes with all your employees. When people know that they're going to have to look their boss in the eye on somewhat of a regular basis, maybe it's a, a quarterly meeting, maybe it's more often, but people begin to, to take their, their job and take these other aspects of their job more serious. If for no other reason than to avoid this awkward conversation every quarter, because nobody really wants to keep looking their boss in the eye and having to continually explain why they underperform relative to expectations that have been clearly spelled out for them. So again, if we have that meeting, nothing's getting done, something's got to change with that. And you know what? We're going to meet next month to see where we're at. I'm going to get a status update on how things are going. A uh, few other things to, to clarify on the front end I've, I've seen become issues. Um, number of patients that you're going to see um, uh, per day or per hour. I, I prefer, unless you're seeing a different um, uh, type of patient or somebody's doing all low vision or something like that, uh, my preference is the schedules are pretty similar among the ODs in a practice. Uh, it's perfectly fine to start somebody out at a slower pace. If, if their previous job, they were uh, working at a, a slower pace or maybe a new grad. But two things I'm gonna tell you absolutely do. If, let's say you bring on a new grad and you say, we're going to start you off slower to, to, uh, to get comfortable with the pace, um, is be real clear. clear Clarity, that's a word you'll hear me use a lot, is be real clear on when that schedule is going to change. Let's say we've got a, typically we see three patients an hour. We're going to start you out on two, just so you get comfortable with the pace, with the EHR system, the staff. But on June 21st, 2019, we're going to go to three patients per hour. The other thing is make sure that they understand that the salary that you negotiated is based on that future schedule, but we're giving you a grace period, right? The salary we're paying you on is based on that three patients per hour, but we're gonna give you this grace period. If you don't clarify that, what happens on June 21st? 
thanks, doc. You gave me a, I got to see all these extra patients, but you're not giving me any more money. No, I don't want to have that conversation on June 21st. Make sure that's clear from the beginning. Uh, production expectations, um, you know, there's probably a thousand numbers you could track. I, for associates, these are probably my top three. Um, I think it's good to track patient scene. I think the associate has a lot less control over that than we perhaps like to think they do. Again, I, what I usually see and the reality of it is that it's usually the owner who's driving the number of patients. Unless you set something else up where they're out there doing these things that we're talking about, in most cases, it's the owner through the marketing and the branding and the service and word of mouth and investing in technology and investing in equipment and diagnostics and creating a great culture and all the things that go into that that are driving the number of patients. Still a good number to track. Um, revenue per patient and capture rate are probably my two favorite because I think they speak so closely to the quality of informing and educating that the associate is doing in the exam lane with the patient. Nobody's asking anyone to twist somebody's arm to buy something they don't want or need. At least I'm not. That's not, that's not how I operate. Wouldn't encourage anyone else to do that. But it just so happens that the better questions we're asking, the more we get to know about the patient and their needs, the more we, we share with them the value that we educate, that we inform them, just so happens that when they walk out in, into that optical, first of all, they're much more likely to walk out into that optical, but they're also likely to spend more money once they, once they can perceive and see the value of it. Um, it's easy to say. We, we don't always know what happens with, a, with an associate in the exam lane. It, it's easy for people to say, well, I'm doing my best. I, I'm, I'm doing these things you're talking about. I, I really am. You can't run from the numbers, though. You can't hide from the numbers. And your numbers make a great benchmark. So I, I like as part of that, the same thing we talked about before, meeting with them. Uh, as part of that meeting, I, I like to add sort of a business component to that as well and talk about these numbers. And I think your numbers make a great benchmark. And again, I'll just use some round numbers here. Let's say your average revenue per patient is $400 and your associate is 380. I'm okay with that. We're pretty close. You're the owner and probably yours should be a little higher anyway. I don't think I'm having a discussion about that. But if I'm 400 and you're 250, we gotta, we gotta figure out what's going on. Let's talk, let me, let me help you. Let me tell you some of the questions that I ask and, and let me kind of help you in, in, in how I converse with the patient and I, how I present these things. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there to start closing that gap. So if people don't know what production expectations are, it's hard to be too upset about the associate who's not producing at the level you want them to. Do they know what that level is and do they know how to get there? That's production. Um, what about the service side of things? Years ago when I was starting out, I was um, actually interviewing for a job with a private practice and the person I was interviewing with um, said something to me that it made a lot of sense. Uh, he wanted me to come in and uh, spend some time, spend like half a day just observing him with patients and observe the staff. And what he said was, he goes, you don't have to practice like me. He goes, you're a smart guy, you got through school, you passed your boards. Um, outside of maybe some mentoring if you want it, you don't have to practice like me. But he said, we have a certain way of doing things here. We have a certain culture to our practice, a certain way we interact with our patients, certain way we treat people. 
a certain way we talk to each other and a certain way we treat each other. And if you're gonna work here, I need you to be part of that culture. And I think that's a fair expectation when you're bringing on somebody as an employee. Generally, I don't think it's a good idea to try to micromanage someone else's clinical abilities. Again, beyond some mentoring, right? You're a senior doctor, somebody right out of school. Um, hopefully they would be opening, open to some feedback from you without really stepping on people's toes. That said, I think it's a fair expectation that as an employee coming into the business that they would, hopefully you hire somebody who's naturally a good fit for your culture or at least would be willing to adapt to your culture. So I think it's a good idea to have them observe you, um, spend a little time observing you to make sure it's a good fit for them as well. So they can see for themselves how things operate there. Um, and clarifying the office culture. Again, that's something that it, it's not one conversation. It's not one meeting or one yearly retreat. Let's talk about this and then it doesn't get discussed again. And I'll use my, uh, one of my mentors, Neil Gailmart, as a example here. A, a big part of his culture and, and his core value was, um, uh, it was, it was a theme around the office, let the patient win let the patient win. It was a, really helped define his customer service model. And I know there's exceptions to everything. Sometimes Disney has to kick people out and tell them not to come back. But for the most part, I really doubt an employee at Gilmart Eye Center ever had to pick up the phone and call Neil and say, we've got this patient here who's not happy with the glasses she bought and she wants her money back. What do we do? And while the rest of the staff stood behind waiting to hear what he had to say. It was clearly defined they knew what to do. So again, as part of culture building, make sure that that's clear, you're, that you're, you're constantly reinforcing the culture, the personality of your office. Uh, I just mentioned patient surveys, because again, I think they're a great tool to use as well. You can't run from the feedback. Um, you get one bad survey and okay, but you get six or seven about your associate that says they don't listen to them and they're, they're real short with them, you know, you, you start to see a pattern here. So patient surveys or other tools to collect feedback can be valuable as well in terms of assessing um, the, uh, uh, the level of service that they're providing. Um, to the point earlier how, of, of uh, um, Anthony, keeping the associate busy, um, absolutely, yeah, you've got, a, you're, you're booked and you've got an associate who's half booked, uh, how do we move more people over to them? Um, one is marketing the associate. It's a great marketing opportunity when you bring on a new doctor because it says expansion, right? It's the same way when you move to a bigger location or expand your office. No one ever looked at a, a, a restaurant that was that bought the unit next to it and was doubling in size and said, I bet that place sucks. You know, you, you look at it and you go, well, the food and service must be good there because they're, they're expanding. So. We, if you're adding an associate, it says, we can't see all these patients by ourselves. People love us so much that there's more and more of them are coming, so we had to add. So there's marketing opportunities there to market the new OD. Um, scheduling, is this a time to add hours? I get it, you don't wanna work till eight o'clock and come in on Saturday. You'd rather be out on your boat or golfing. I, I understand, but when you bring on an associate, um, is this a time to add those extra hours? Or is it a time for you to cut back? Maybe you're at a point where you don't wanna work six days a week anymore, you wanna work three. Um, is this a time for you to cut back, which would open up more room for the associate? Um, a great opportunity if, if they're not booked is as your patients are coming through, um, 
walk them in the room and introduce them. That helps, I think, move people to the new OD, is getting them comfortable, friendly, shaking their hand. And maybe next year when we ask them to see the other OD, they'll feel a little bit more comfortable with it. Um, consider your staff's role as well. How does your staff present the, um, the associate? Do they almost apologize for it? Yeah. Yeah, Doc can't see you for six weeks. I'm sorry, we got this other Doc here. She's, she's okay. You, wanna, you, wanna, you want that appointment or not? It's a lot different than saying, I'm sorry, Doc can't see you for six weeks. Uh, he's cutting back a little bit, but we've got this great new associate here. She's great with kids. Everyone loves her. Staff loves her. She does my exam. I think you'll really like her, and she's got an opening in two days. That feels a lot better. A lot of times people don't want to go to a different doctor because it feels risky. You're just not sure what to expect. That has actually been shown to work in other industries as well, like accountants, like real estate, where the head person gets so busy they can't see all these people and need to start delegating them. They've actually done research and found that it's such a factor in, in people's acceptance of the new person when the staff is really excited and encouraging of them switching over to the other. See, we told them that the new doctor was so trusted, the senior doctor now is being examined by the other doctor. Good, so perfect, this, yeah. This, this new doctor is so-and-so's doctor. Yeah, yeah. And if he trusts them, I know you Yeah, no, really yeah. They trust you and they'll trust your opinion as well. And I think to some degree as an extension, they'll trust your staff as well because you're the, the ones they hire. They need to hear that. I, I've been there too. You call up, I like my doctor, but he's gotten really busy. And I call up now and they'll say, well, Dr. So-and-so uh, is booked out for three months, but his assistant is in. And my first thought is, should I wait three months? And but again, if, if they present that in a way where they sound really encouraging, like I think you'll really like the associate, they're great, patients really love the, uh, the new doctor, it, it, feels, um, it feels better. I, I feel better kind of taking that step, making that appointment with the new doctor. Um, again, we talked about this already, consider the associate's responsibility in building his or her patient base, probably not something they're gonna proactively do on their own, but if you wanna drive that, by all means, just clarify what it is that you want. Um, that a whole nother lecture there. Should I take more vision plans? Nobody likes them. The, they don't pay enough money. But you know, ev even doctors who have not taken any vision plans or taken very few, um, from a purely non-emotional business standpoint, um, you know, do we look at that and say, well, I'm bringing on a new doctor. I, I, I perhaps need more patients. Do I add more vision plans? Um, at, at least something worth. Sure. Typically, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so comp, we, uh, I won't go too much to you. We kind of covered this already, but again, the flat rate, a lot of practices just come to a, uh, you know, pay a flat rate. It's the cleanest, simplest, um, straight production. And that's what I wanted to circle back to. Um, it works great for you. So you were talking about the uh, um, paying on straight production before. And if that works great for you, then go ahead and, and, and stay with it. Um, the one issue, and maybe this hasn't been an issue with you, you've got a guaranteed um, minimum. We, we've seen some offices that didn't do that and just paid a, usually it's somewhere between 15 to 18% of whatever they collect. And sometimes that goes a bit sideways if the numbers start to skew one way or the other. And we've seen some owners 
get to a point where they felt like they were very consistent with this lecture, they felt like they were paying way above market for the associate and they felt like the associate hadn't been doing anything special to grow the business. And now they're paying them $190,000 um, on, a, on a production or not paying them enough money because something happened that really wasn't the, you know, in, within the control of the, the associate and there was a big dip. There was road construction outside or uh, a big factory dropped a plan or something like that. Um, so, but if that's working for you, you can certainly just continue making that offer to other doctors. Yeah, cool. Keep doing it. Yeah. The happier. Yeah. There's there's always that side of it too. That the more there, I, I'm okay. But you know, you can say I'm okay. If they're making 190 and I'm pulling in, yeah, then hey, I'm I'm good with 190. One thing I like about tracking numbers is that it, it sometimes it's just an excuse to talk about numbers for the doctor who doesn't feel comfortable talking with their doctor about production. If you do have some kind of a bonus system set up, it gives you an excuse to sit down on a regular basis and have a discussion around numbers. And if that person's not producing where you need them to, yeah, it doesn't feel like they're in trouble. But again, it, it opens up a dialogue. It opens up a discussion around the numbers and hey, let me help you hit your bonus. There's, cause there's something here that we're just not, uh, you know, there, there's, there's some discrepancy or disparity here between my numbers and your numbers. We've on, a, on the collected amounts we've seen. So that means a, so if they were generating a million dollars, which is usually at the high end of what one doctor can produce, um, then you'd be paying them two hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Com relative to what they're making, yeah. I can only tell you that usually. 200,000 would definitely be, on, and, and again, you can say, well, I'm, you know, they're making a million, if you're comfortable with that. I, what I can tell you is that the typical percentage when they're paid on a pure percentage usually comes in somewhere between 15 to 18%. So for a million, if they're generating a million, and it's even if it's 18%, they're making 180, which is definitely on the high end for an associate, but if you're comfortable with it, you just have to be comfortable with the numbers. But you know, honestly, if we're talking about these kind of numbers, we're talking about an associate producing eight, nine hundred thousand, a million dollars. This is why I don't get too concerned over, you know, why uh, bicker over, you know, ten grand or something. They okay? Well, I, you know, I, I want to pay one ten. They're asking for one twenty. I don't know if they can do this, but they're going to make you know eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars for your practice. Pay them one twenty. Let's get this going. 
Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, and blended rates, that's where you might have a, a base pay um, where with, with a bonus on top. And you will usually see that somewhere between one to 2%. So you got your base and then you a production bonus in that, you know, it's, it's not full um, straight production-based incentive, but more of a blended rate. And then of course we can work in bonuses. Um, just kind of go through the last couple here. Um, benefits for, you know, typically been reserved for the full-time associate. Uh, we are seeing more maybe partial benefits on the, um, uh, for part-timers, again, as a means of attracting more people into the practice when you're not able to, um, when, if you're struggling to bring on an OD even, even part-time. Yeah, typically it, it would be. No, it's, I mean, you can always check with your insurance plan. Most employers do have that. Um, sometimes I get asked, they have their own insurance. Do I still need to provide insurance for it? Honestly, I would say call your insurance um, to find out if, if they're covered. And you also don't know if they dropped it or something like So it's, it's probably worthwhile for you as an employer just to make sure that they're covered, added onto your policy as well. Um, partnerships, sometimes they work great. I know some practices that they, they wouldn't do it any other way. They have, in some cases, multiple partners. They love it. Uh, it's worked great for them, and sometimes they end up like this. Um, so why do they end up like that? Uh, a lot of times, um, well, let me go just a couple things here in terms of a, what makes a healthy partnership. Um, one thing I would want if I was partnering with anybody on any business in any field, you've got to be business-minded. Um, and that's not the description of every optometrist out there. It's fine if you're not. But um, I, I struggle a little bit when um, uh, employer says, well, I've got this, I got this OD that I'm interviewing. Uh, he's been out of school for 14 minutes, and he wants to buy into my practice. Um, does, does he know or she know what that means, because I didn't, my first year, I didn't know what that meant. Um, so I always tell people, if you're bringing on an associate and there's an intention there to buy into the practice uh, or become a partner, is just observe them, bring them on, observe them, and try to see, do they display uh, behaviors consistent with somebody who's entrepreneurial-minded? Are they coming to you with ideas to grow the business? Are they interested in the numbers? Are they coming to you with solutions to problems? Or are they just showing up, seeing patients, and going home, which, by the way, is fine for an employee. But if they're not doing these other things, but they're saying they want to buy into the practice, I, I, I've got some questions around that. Are you really entrepreneurial-minded, or do you just like the way ownership sounds when it comes out of your mouth? Um, similar vision and philosophy. So many of the problems I see with um, Associates, when things go wrong, again, it's just an issue where they don't necessarily share the same, uh, uh, same vision or same philosophy as the owner. You got somebody who's very aggressive in terms of business and somebody who's very conservative. Somebody who's very um, focused on customer service and somebody who doesn't think that's a real important part of the business. So again, just work with somebody for a while and see if you're a good fit. It's very much like marriage. See if you're a good fit. Date before you get married. And, um, and consider your own. Are, are you ready to give up equity and control? The person I'm interviewing uh, says he wants to buy into my practice. 
I don't care. Is it, what does that mean to you? You need to consider your own equity and your own control in this, and are you ready to give that, that up? And just to kind of close out here, um, I have one simple philosophy on firing people, and it's this. I don't think they should ever be surprised they're getting fired. Yeah, so if you're doing all the things we talked about, which leads up to this, um, if you've been a, you've created a, a high level of communication, you've given a lot of feedback, you've set clear expectations for people, you've given them the tools, the training, the resources they need to succeed, and they don't do it, then it's on them. If you're not doing all those other things, it's kind of on you. And the, the, the true litmus test of this is when you're calling them in to tell them they no longer have a job here, that shouldn't be a surprise to them at that point. So that's what I hope I can help you avoid. I don't want, I don't see associate ODs get fired that often, but I do see them get fired. And, and I'd rather it was because of, they chose not to align with your office and your culture, as opposed to something that could have been prevented with, with a higher level of more engaged management. And I'm gonna say lastly here, I love when people tell me, I love when doctors tell me that, that revenues are up and cost of goods are down and all those things, because they're great for the business. But you know what I really like? What really gives me a lot of satisfaction is when, when doctors say, I've got time now to go golfing or take my wife on a vacation or spend more time with my grandkids. That to me is, is, is much more impactful. So your ability to do that does depend on your ability to replace yourself to some degree. And so I hope I help give you some things that could not only help you replace yourself, but again, successfully replace yourself because that's really the only way this works. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it.